According to a 2010 Harvard study, the average person's mind is wandering 47% of the time, meaning half the time you're doing something, you're thinking about something else. In an article titled, You Can Get Focused, you can find a variety of suggestions for how we can regain that valuable attention so we can accomplish our goals. Top of the list in how to get focused is this, disengage from distractions. Now, the main character of our text tonight is going to do that very thing. In the midst of a lot of distraction, he remains focused. Now, we left on a cliffhanger last time. Abraham's servant, we're never given his name, he was on a quest to find a wife for Isaac. God providentially led him to the very right person in the very right place, but then she ran away, leaving the servant behind. And as we pick back up, the adventure gets back on track. That's good. But Abraham's servant will be presented with a variety of distractions and potential delays, and he carefully avoids these things, keeping his focus on his mission. Though this is a story centered around ancient arranged marriage, it can act as a model for us to help think about our own service to the Lord as Christians, because in a way, this quest is similar to the one we've been sent on, at least on a devotional level. Now, we're to go into the world and seek out those who are willing to join the family of faith. We find ourselves in a faraway land bringing the master's message, which is an offer to be betrothed to the son and inherit all that he has. And so we're going to begin in verse 29. Now, Rebekah had a brother named Laban, and Laban ran out to the man at the spring. Uh, many of you are familiar with the general broad strokes of the book of Genesis and perhaps are familiar with what kind of person Laban was. He's not our kind of guy. He's a fox in the hen house. But if we were reading this for the very first time, we might wonder if he too was a quality man. There's an interesting theme of running, running through this story. We've seen the servant um, uh, very urgently about his master's business, but we saw him run up to Rebecca. And then right after that, we saw Rebecca running after, uh, running back home after she had heard about God's plan and God's amazing providence. And now, immediately after that, we see Laban. He's the one running to make the acquaintance of Abraham's servant. But before we get the wrong impression of Laban, we're told what motivated his hustle. Verse 30, as soon as he had seen the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he had heard his sister Rebecca's words, this man said this to me, he went to the man. He was standing there by the camels at the spring. Now, Abraham's servant, if you remember, were here last week. He ran because of his spiritual expectation. He fully believed that the God of his master, Abraham, was going to go before him to Abraham's you know, old homeland and prepare this job that he had been sent out to do. And he believed that the Lord was going to follow through. And so he went to the place where women would be found, and he ran up to this first lady that he saw. Rebecca ran home out of just enthusiasm and excitement, we would say. It Reminds me of the time when uh, Peter is miraculously set free from prison, and he goes to the house of his friends, and he knocks at the door, and the servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door, but it's nighttime, so she doesn't open it. She hears Peter's voice. She's so excited because they've been having a prayer meeting about setting Peter free. She just runs back to tell all the friends, and she just leaves him at the door, sort of leaves him hanging as she goes to tell the good news. Laban isn't running out of godly expectation or spiritual excitement. He's there for the glitter. 
his shadiness and his greed are going to be put on prominent display when we return to him in a few chapters, which is actually several decades later. Laban's a young man in this passage. And so already we, we have this interesting contrast to consider. Abraham's servant, what was he doing? He was about his master's business looking for a chosen lady uh, to fulfill the, the will of the master and the plan of God. Whereas Laban, 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 he wore Ray-Bans, Laban's Ray-Bans. Laban, maybe it was Laban, we don't know. Laban was looking for worldly treasure. He was his own master. So very different motivations. Verse 31, Laban said, I might switch to Laban, you know, we'll just, we'll just lean into it. Laban said, come you who are blessed by the Lord. Why are you standing out here? I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. What a relief our servant here must have felt. This truly had been a Cinderella moment as the perfect woman, the woman that, that he had spent all of this time preparing for and praying to God about, and the one that fit exactly who he was looking for, she just ran off into the night, leaving not so much as a glass slipper behind. And, and we could say, well, he probably would have figured out, but where, where do we see him? He's, he's, just hang, he's just standing there. He's just standing by the camels and his guys, and is like, what do we do? It's not like this was 10 seconds. Re- Rebecca ran home, interacted with a bunch of, where, however far that was, interacted with everybody, explained to her dad and her brother what was going on, and then Laban started giving directions about, hey, get this ready for camels, get this ready, rooms ready for people to sleep, and those sort of things. And then he finally comes back out. So there's quite an interval of time. How long had he stood there in shock, wondering what he should do? Now, Laban here calls him blessed by the Lord. And there are hints that the servant quickly picks up on the fact that Laban is uh, not a God worshiper like he is or like Abraham is, and that Laban is deeply materialistic. And in reality, we know that Laban knows nothing of the Lord. He just doesn't. We are Bible-loving Christians. We believe that God can be known, and he has explained himself, and he has spoken, and and he has shown us who he is in Christ Jesus, his son, and that there's just tons of information we can know about him as we also enter into a personal living relationship with him as individuals. Uh, And so we know or can know a lot about the Lord, certainly not everything, But as Bible-loving Christians, we want to bring the truth with love to this lost world because people are in need. They're trapped by sin. Uh, They're in bondage to the enemy, and we want to help set them free the way we've been set free by the truth of the gospel. In many cases, the people that we come into contact with will really know nothing of the Lord. Laban didn't know anything about the Lord. They may think that they do. They may have some assumptions or traditions or ideas, but if you're not a believer, if you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, if you don't actually systematically go through the Word of God yourself and submit yourself to it, then you don't actually understand who God is and what He has said. That's the way that we know God. That's how you love God, by by surrendering to Him and by doing what He says. And to do what He says, you have to know what He says and actually take a look and believe that when I open up the living Word of God, that it really is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant Word, and that it it is the God of heaven and earth speaking to me for my life so that I might have a future that glorifies Him. Here's something that illustrates what I'm talking about. 
In 2021, that terrible, terrible year, uh, Barna Research found that 51% of American adults say they have a biblical worldview. Now, already, we don't believe that, right? <laughs> but okay, the research says that 51% of people, when, when questioned, say that they have a biblical worldview. Okay, great. The problem is when those people, that 51%, when they are questioned about a biblical worldview, when they are asked things that pertain to a biblical worldview, it becomes very clear that they absolutely do not have a biblical worldview because they do not agree with what the Bible says. For example, of the people who say that they have a biblical worldview, 49% of those people say that reincarnation is a possibility after death. So you don't have a biblical worldview because the Bible not only doesn't say that is a possibility, it says the opposite, that it is appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. And there's lots of questions like that. And so the research showed that in reality, just 6% maybe of Americans hold to it a biblical worldview. And among the millennial generation, that number drops as low as 2% of people who actually have a biblical worldview that is informed by the scriptures. And so we're out there, right, interacting with people, and a lot of them think they know things about God, think they know things about Christianity, think they know things about the Bible. But a lot of them are going to be like Laban. Laban didn't know anything. He's a pagan Chaldean. He's never spoken with the Lord. He's never met the Lord. He doesn't know the word of the Lord. But here's what's beautiful. Even though Laban was a, a pagan who didn't know the truth of God, what did God do? The Lord, in his grace, sent someone to give a testimony to this pagan and his family, a testimony based on true revelation, based on the revealed word of God and his active work in the life of his servants. Verse 32, so the man came to the house and the camels were unloaded. Straw and feed were given to the camels and water was brought to wash his feet and the feet of the men with him. A meal was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. So Laban said, please speak. The servant stays focused and he would not allow himself to be distracted. Remember, they had traveled about 500 miles on foot from home. Uh, maybe on some camels, but probably a lot on foot too. Now, after many long nights sleeping on the desert floor, after eating camp food for how, how, who knows how many days or weeks, after all of this time, he's finally in a proper house being waited on and given many comforts. But what happens? The servant refuses to be distracted. He says, the appetizers are going to have to wait. I have something to say. And that's more important than the creature comforts that are being offered to me right now. This sort of mission focus is very important as we serve the Lord, staying focused on what we've been called to do and, and executing the job until it's done. Without that kind of focus, we end up you know, either missing opportunities or making spiritual mistakes of, of one degree or another. Personal example. I remember a few years ago, 
Uh, the Lord gave me an, a really fun opportunity, uh, w- really above my pay grade. It was very exciting. Our friend Dennis Agajanian asked if I would play with him at a few churches over a four-day period during Christmas time. I was honored. It was a treat. There are way more people that he could have and probably should have asked if he really wanted to sound good, but uh, he sounds good on his own. He, he had me tag along, okay? It was a ton of fun. But then on the very last song of the very last night at the very last church, I was sitting in the audience during the sermon, and it had been kind of a long four days, and it was just a lot, you know, I'm not making excuses. I was just kind of zoned out a little bit. And, and in the middle of the sermon, I just sort of stopped paying attention because I allowed myself to think, we're done. It's all, we're all sewed up here. We're good. We, we, we did all of the show, not shows, we did all of the services, we did all of the churches, except for here's the problem, we weren't done. There was one more song to do. Uh, and, and, and so in that state of negligence and zoning out, I look up and everybody's on stage except for me for the last song. I'm down in the pew and it's not a good situation. I uh, died a thousand deaths inside. And so I tried to get myself into position with as little disruption as possible, but the truth is I missed the first quarter of the song. Um, this is, if I was the coach, I'd go out to the, the mound and say, give me the ball, you're done. You, know, you're, you, you get out of here. And Dennis, of course, is always gracious and was very gracious and didn't make a, a single thing of it. I still feel bad to this day because it, it was altogether my own fault. And, and it was completely unacceptable. There's no reason for that to happen. I was just being a bum and just not paying attention. And I drifted into distraction and needlessly dropped the ball. Now, nobody died. Nobody said I was going to get saved. Then this guy missed the opening verse. I don't know what to believe anymore. Okay, so that's a, you know, but still, I do feel bad about it to this day. It is a, a black mark on my heart that that, that happened. And it just happened because I decided, yeah, I, we're, we're as good as done. You know, it's like the tortoise and the hare, right? They, what does the hare do? He says, I might as well have won, and let me kick up my feet up, and then the tortoise squeeze, you know, scooches on by. So Abraham's servant could have thought and said, hey, this is all sewn up. We are done. We got here. We found the girl. We just have to cross a few T's and dot a few I's. But he didn't do that, thank goodness. Because he maybe didn't know who he was dealing with when it came to Laban. But we know who he was dealing with. Jacob is going to be uh, distracted and delayed for 20 years in Laban's house in a few chapters here. And so this servant, I love it because he says, the job's not done till we're back home. That's when the job is done. And in the same way, our job, on a great sense, in a, in a general sense, is not done until we're at home with the Lord in glory. And then there's going to be an eternity to rest. But for now, we want to stay mission ready and focused in on what the Lord has called us to do. Now, in verses 34 through 49, the servant recounts what we studied in depth last week. So rather than just parse through that providence again like we did last time, this time it just sort of serves for us as a good example of how to share a testimony with, with folks that the Lord has brought into, into contact with you. And it's something we're all called to do, share a testimony of what the Lord has done. So let's read this. I am Abraham's servant, verse 34. He said, the Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he's become rich. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female slaves, and camels and donkeys. Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. 
My master put me under this oath. You will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but will go to my father's family and my clan and take a wife for my son. But I said to my master, suppose the woman will not come back with me. He said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and make your journey a success. And you will take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's family. And then you'll be free from my oath. If you go to my family and they do not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. Today, when I came to the spring, I prayed, Lord God of my master Abraham, if only you will make my journey successful. I'm standing here at a spring. Let the young woman who comes out to draw water, and I say to her, please let me drink a little water from your jug. And who responds to me, drink, I'll draw water for your camels also. Let her be the woman that the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished praying silently, there was Rebecca coming with her jug on her shoulder. And she went down to the spring and drew water. And so I said to her, please let me have a drink. And she quickly lowered her jug from her shoulder and said, drink, I'll water your camels also. So I drank and she also watered the camels. And then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She responded, the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and bracelets on her wrists. And then I knelt low and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who guided me on the right way to take the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you're going to show me kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me. If not, tell me, and I'll go elsewhere. There's some wonderful elements in this speech. First of all, what he's sharing is a testimony. He's not making things up. He's not ranting and raving. Uh, he talks about what God has done in his midst. God wants to build testimonies in your life. Now, your experience isn't the end-all, be-all of God's work. Your testimony is not the ultimate message that God is trying to deliver. Your testimony and mine are little ones or the overall ones of our lives are meant to be the vehicle that God uses to deliver his gospel truth and reveal his work. And so we see here the, the servant talking about the testimony of what had been going on in his life, but always oriented toward this living God who said certain things and is doing specific things. Uh, it's really about the Lord. Psalm 66, 16 says this, come and listen all who fear God and I will tell you what he has done for me. And so the Lord wants us to share testimony with the world around us. Our testimony is not meant to make us seem great, but to display God's faithful love, a love that can only be understood in the context of revelation. As the servant begins, he speaks to Laban's family on their level. He knows that Laban uh, is, is coming, from, coming at life from a, a materialistic, transactional uh, love of wealth view. And so it's interesting, he, he's not trying to deceive him at all, but he meets him there at, at the place that Laban likes to think about. He says, hey, you know, my master is a wealthy man, a very wealthy man, which would have immediately grabbed Laban's attention. But then the, the servant goes on, he says, but he's not wealthy because he stole or because he cheated or because he clawed his way up from the mean streets of Canaan. No, his life has been completely affected by this living God, the God of heaven, the one true God who's been walking with my master for year after year, decade after decade. And so he uses this touch point that, that would, would grab Laban's attention. And, and, and we would say he starts off by sort of speaking Laban's language, not in a carnal way, not in a deceitful way, not in a way to, uh, to trick Laban or anything like that. But he, but he, he speaks to him with, with some thoughtfulness and some wisdom here. 
And one commentator points out that he also is using tact and wisdom by pointing out that this Isaac that he wants to bring Rebekah to isn't some weird old man. Because Laban and Bethuel can do the math. They know who Abraham is, and they know that he's 140 years old, right? And so they would have been thinking, wait a minute, just how old is this guy that you want to take my young daughter to go and, you know, my young lady to go and marry? This might not be a good situation. So we see just thoughtfulness and tact and a a thoughtful approach to the way that he begins sharing with the people here. Now, the servant doesn't try to hide the Lord in his speech at all. He doesn't try to smuggle God in unawares to to this group. I mean, he is out front and bold uh, talking about God and prayer and providence and the Lord's sovereignty over his life and the Lord walking with you through life, things that, that would have been foreign to this pagan who worshiped many gods, maybe the moon god, but the moon didn't walk with you through life. It was up there in the sky doing weird moon stuff. And so the servant here is not trying to just say, well, my God is just the same as your God. He's like, no, man, my God is the true God. He's the the living God who speaks and he walks with us and he's trustworthy and and here's how he hears prayer and here's how worthy he is of worship and here's how he wants to guide our lives and here's how he's faithful and all of these different great things. Our testimonies will obviously include us, but they're not about us. They're supposed to be about Jesus, about who Jesus is and what he has done. And so if you find yourself sharing a testimony and it's all about you and all about what you have done, it's not really the goal. That's not the job. An ambassador doesn't go to a foreign country and say, let me tell you about how great I am. An ambassador exists to promote the message of the king or the president that, they've, that has appointed them to go and to speak the words that have been spoken to them. That's the idea. We note that the servant brings his audience to a moment of, a de- of decision. He says, tell me if you're going to accept this or not. Tell me. I, I want to know. You-, you have to decide today. Christians like to argue about things like altar calls. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a hot debate over whether altar calls are okay or not. People like to waste time. It's fine. I don't really get the point of that argument. But here's what we can, what everybody can agree on, right? All Christians can agree that in the Bible, the messengers of God, whether they were the, the apostles or prophets or even a scene like this one, messengers from God consistently call people to a moment of decision. Choose this day whom you will serve. As we testify, as we preach the gospel, we want to do the same. Maybe that means you should say, hey, raise your hand. Maybe that means, hey, you know, or maybe it just means that... I'm telling you, you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ, and now it's on you. But we need to call people to decision. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, it's possible in a group this size, that you're not a believer, you've never been born again, Jesus Christ said you must be born again. And if you're not born again, then you are guilty under the weight of your sin, and you are going to be judged for that sin, and the wages of your sin is death. And there's no hope after death. There's no second chance. There's no reincarnation. There's no purgatory. These are all things that are made up that are not from the Bible, whether people have said that they're part of a biblical worldview or not. They're not. But Jesus says, how about this? How about I pay the penalty for your sin? How about I take the punishment in your place and you walk free? How do we do that? If you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so you need to make a decision if you're not a Christian here tonight. 
I can't make it for you. Your parents can't make it for you. None of your friends can make it for you. You have to make that decision. And you can make it in the quiet of your heart right now, just calling out to the Lord and asking him to save you. There are a few other wonderful principles we can take to heart from this speech. First, we see the power of prayer, even silent prayer. God hears your silent prayers, uh, and he responds. Second, we see that the servant's motivation was completing the mission. His goal was God's will being done. And third, there at the end, we see that he thought the best thing Laban and the family could do for him was to accept the message and decide positively. That, in his mind, would be true kindness. He's like, man, if you want to bless me, if you want to help me, if you want to do something uh, kind and good for me, then agree with what God is doing and answer positively toward his will. That was the best thing they could do. Undoubtedly, he was happy for the warm bed and the sumptuous feast, but really what he was looking for was for not for them to wine and dine him, but to conform to the Lord's will. He said, man, that's showing me kindness. That's what I'm looking for. I'll sleep outside if I have to, but I'm hoping that you will, will acknowledge what God has done and say yes to what he wants to do. Verse 50, Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We have no choice in the matter. Rebecca is here in front of you. Take her and go and let her be a wife for your master's son, just as the Lord has spoken. We don't see a real surrendering to the Lord here. They do give their daughter, but it seems that they did not give their own hearts. What they said was, according to linguists, we are not able to speak to you bad or good. And so effectively, they're saying, yeah, we acknowledge that. I mean, everybody believed in, in, in gods and God back then. You know, it wasn't weird that, that they believed that a God did something, right? We're, we're so used to unbelievers being atheistic in the world today, but nobody was an atheist back then. And so they're like, well, I guess your you know, weird God that you're talking about did this, so we don't want to make the gods mad. But they say, well, we can't answer, we can't speak to you bad or good. And so they are uncommitted as uh, Rebecca's uh, brother and father. And so they couldn't deny the ob- obvious providence. But we also note that they did not say, hey, can we come and join in this incredible arrangement? Uh, can we come and, and crash in Canaan with, with Abraham? If you're saying that the God of heaven walks and talks with you there? You're saying that he guides your steps? You're saying that he does things like miraculously provides children in, in your old age? I would hope that we would say, well, can, can we come? <laughs> and we see that in the Exodus, right? The mixed multitude that goes out with the children of Israel. It wasn't just Jews that went out from Egypt. A bunch of, of Gentiles went out with them too because they saw what God was doing. They said, yeah, man, forget Pharaoh, forget all of our gods. We want to follow you and your God. But Bethuel and Laban don't do that here. When God speaks, we may think that indecision is, isn't a choice, but it is a choice. To not decide to go God's way is to decide to not go his way. Verse 52, when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed to the ground before the Lord. This servant is God-oriented in each scene of the story. He's at a well, but he's in prayer. He's at a dinner, but he's thanking God. He's never afraid to honor God in public. He's quick to worship. Hey, he's not shy about it at all. He's always busting out with a, a, a hymn of praise no matter where he is. Verse 53, and then he brought out objects of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious gifts to her brother and her mother. This was perhaps the bride price that would need to be paid in that culture. What a beautiful 
type for us of what God has done on our behalf. Abraham had provided what was necessary. The servant didn't have to go into his own pocket. And so we translate this as where God guides, God provides. If we're being sent out to go and do a work on behalf of our master, on behalf of, behalf of the Father, that he's going to provide for that uh, and empower us to do what he's asked us to do. Verse 54, and then he and the men with him ate and drank and spent the night. And when they got up in the morning, he said, send me to my master. They had had one night of rest. And now the servant is ready to walk 500 more miles to get back home. Earlier, he had not wanted to be distracted by creature comforts, and now he's not wanting to be delayed in getting home. And on the way there, maybe they rode camels, but the way back, they're walking because they're going to be taking ladies with them, and the ladies are on the camels. So he's going to walk 500 miles a day after walking 500 miles. I mean, obviously, it takes an extended period of time, but this is real dedication. This is real focus and real, um, not just enthusiasm, but an urgency to do what needs doing. It would have been easy to hang around for a while. He could have justified it saying, well, it'd be rude to eat and run. Better hang out here and, and, and be, be hospitable with these people. And I'm sure it was nice for, to be served for once. He's a servant. He's the one that does the serving in Abraham's house. And now he's the guy being served. And so I, I imagine there could have been a great temptation to be like, you know, this is kind of nice. It's kind of nice to have somebody else bring the water for the camel, somebody else to bring the water for my feet to be washed, somebody else to set the table. But this guy is all about the call. He's all about faithfulness. He's all about being part of God's work and honoring his master. Verse 55, but her brother and mother said, let the girl stay with us for about 10 days. Then she can go. This seems pretty reasonable, right? But linguists point out that it wasn't just a week and a half. Apparently, they used a saying here, and the saying was this, let Rebecca stay here, days are 10. And, and the best they can figure is that scholars believe that what they were probably referring to is more like a time period of 10 months or a year or two years. Say, hey, well, what's the hurry? Just hang out here. And sometimes trips like this did take long, extended periods of time. I mean, it, they didn't know when the servant was going to get back. And we, again, we'll see Jacob gets caught up in a long wait a while in Laban's house. And it doesn't turn out well for him. So what does our servant do? 56, he responded to them, do not delay me since the Lord has made my journey a success. Send me away so I may go to my master. In that article about regaining focus, which was stupid, a second strategy they gave was stick to a schedule. The servant didn't have a be back by date any more than you and I have a get back to heaven by date. We don't. We're just on the job right now. It's a fluid situation. But once this thing was going, the servant wanted to be as timely as possible. It reminds us of the fact that Peter said that you and I can be a part of hastening the coming of the Lord through the way we conduct ourselves as servants. And the warnings in the New Testament about not being the kind of servants who fall asleep, who, who lay down on the job, who don't do what we've been asked to do and think the master will come at some point, but it's not today. Instead, we want to be timely, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And so the servant here says, listen, I am not a free agent. I am not just a guy. I am a servant to a master and I'm on the clock and it's time to go. Verse 57, so they said, well, let's call the girl and ask her opinion. They called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she replied, I will go. Rebecca has no idea what tomorrow will be like, 
but she is ready to step into the providence of this God she's been uh, introduced to. It meant walking by faith, but she would do it even if her family wasn't going to go with her, even if her family wanted to slow things down. She says, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go with God, even though you guys want to hang back. Verse 59, so they sent away their sister, Rebecca, with the one who had nursed her and raised her. And Abraham's servant said, to, uh, and Abraham's servant and his men, they blessed Rebecca, saying to her, our sister, may you become thousands upon ten thousands. May your offspring possess the city gates at their, of their enemies. And then Rebecca and her female servants got up, mounted the camels, and followed the man. So the servant took Rebecca and left. Earlier, Rebecca had identified herself as the daughter of Bethuel. And here she's identified as the sister, right? But now she's starting a new life with a new identity. She's becoming the wife, a member of the unique family of faith, forever separated out, forever set apart for God's purposes. She's going to be transformed as a person and as a figure in history. No longer is she ever remembered as Rebecca the Aramean. Now she's Rebecca the Hebrew. The, you know, from whom the Messiah would come. And her choice impacts the lives of these other ladies who go with her. Now, they didn't have a lot of say in it in that situation, but it speaks to us of how our lives will touch and impact the lives of others around us. And as we live unto God, he does a good work of blessing those around us by our transformation. These servants of hers were undoubtedly benefited and blessed to be connected with her because she went with God and was a part of what God was doing. Much better for them to go to Canaan and be in Abraham's household, be there with the family of faith, than to stay back with Laban. And it's because she made this godly choice, they were impacted. And as we choose godly things, the people that our lives connect with are impacted as well. In their parting poem here, Rebecca's family hopes for lots of great things for her. But what is it based on? They can't speak for God. You know, what they're saying ends up working out in a prophetic sense. But it's based on nothing. Uh, they, they're just, just saying words that are, sound like a good thing to say, just sort of the empty hope of, of parting people on the human level. I hope things go well for you. Whereas we as Christians have hope that does not disappoint, it's hope rooted in truth, one secured in the loyal faithfulness of God himself who does not falter or fail. And so they, in their poem, are hoping for victory and lots of offspring and all of that, but, but what's it based on? They are building their lives upon the world's sand, and all of those things can just be wiped out in a moment. When we build our lives upon the Lord, that's when we've built something that will last and something that is secure and something that we can be sure of that, hey, the Lord will work together for good those that love him and are called according to his purpose. We don't have to just say empty, hopeful words like, I hope it all works out. Everything will be good. Everything will always work out. We know that what's going to work itself out and it's God's glory through our lives as we walk with him. Verse 62, now Isaac was returning from Bir Lahai Roy for he was living in the Negev region. In the early evening, Isaac went out to walk in the field, and looking up, he saw the camels coming. There's Isaac coming out to stroll in this land the Lord had promised. Your version may say meditating. Coming from Bir Lahai Roy, we're reminded of God's watchful eye looking out over your life every moment of every day. The name of that place means the well of the living one who sees me. 
The Lord sees your life and wants to fill it with his goodness and his glory and his truth as you stroll through the time and the place he has established you. Verse 64, Rebekah looked up, and when she saw Isaac, she got down from her camel, and she asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? And the servant answered, it is my master. And so she took her veil and covered herself. We have a lovely scene of boy meets girl here. They each look up, and, and we're given this impression of, of a simultaneous glance of what we might call even love at first sight. God has loved you from the beginning. And when we really look at who he is, how could we help but love him in return? People who say, well, you know, think they know things about God. Well, do you love him? No. Then you don't know anything about God. Because if you know the truth of who God is and what he has done, how could you help but love him for those things? For her part, Rebecca immediately presents herself as the bride. One of the commentators, Bruce Walkie, points out that this veiling she does. There's a bunch of girls with her. And she puts this veil on as an immediate identifier saying, I'm the bride. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one that came, was fetched for you. And so we just see this, this beautiful readiness about her choice and a great personal deliberateness to walk into this new life. She didn't know what to expect. She didn't know what kind of guy this was going to be. And, and yet she trusted the Lord and just walked with him. Verse 66, and then the servant told Isaac everything he had done. You and I are servants, and we will give an account to our master one day when the journey is done. We want to be found faithful and profitable in our service. But that requires focus and follow through and application in the here and now, the way the servant had stayed focused along the way. And finally, verse 67, Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and took Rebekah to be his wife. Isaac loved her, and he was comforted after his mother's death. Arranged marriage is a foreign concept to us. But Moses points out here, this was not just a transaction. This, there was real love in this relationship. Meanwhile, what an amazing development for Rebecca. A few verses ago, she was a random pagan outsider being bossed around by some greedy, wealth-grubbing Laban, Laban, I've heard it said, who cared, <laughs> who cared more about himself than anyone else. And now, just a few verses later, who is she? She's been given the role of matriarch in this incredible, unique family. She's been brought right into the master's tent and given a place of power. What a transformation. And this is what God does for us. We're saved out of sin. We're saved out of bondage. We're saved out of guilt. We're saved out of, out of uh, slavery to greed and selfishness and all of these things. And he says, I'm going to bring you into my very own household, and I'm going to make you a co-inheritor. You're going to rule and reign with me. I'm going to put you in that place of prominence with me because you are betrothed to me, and I'm going to do all of this and more for you. And he's going to love us with an undying love. What a good God we get to serve. So... Let's stay focused as we serve him.